Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! They killed Masa Amini because of a piece of hair coming out from her hijab. The youth is asking for freedom. They are asking for rights for all the people because everyone has the right to have dignity and freedom. The youth, the 15, 16-year-old are asking for rights and freedom, but they kill us. They do not have a conscience, no humanity. They are killing immediately. Protests are continuing in Iran and around the world, demanding justice for Masa Amini, the 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman who died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. Human rights groups say 76 people have now been killed as Iran cracks down on the women-led protests. We'll get the latest. Plus, we look at a fight for affordable housing in Philadelphia. The reason that we're fighting for these university cities, low-income um, affordable housing units is because they're like one of few low-income housing units left in West Philadelphia. Um, and we see that developers are coming through our neighborhoods and gentrifying our areas at an all-time high. And it's not just happening here, it's happening all across the United States. We'll speak to two residents facing eviction in Philadelphia, plus Bishop William Barber of the Four People's Campaign, which is organizing to stop the evictions. And we go to Baltimore, where a property management company partly owned by Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has agreed to pay more than $3 million to the state of Maryland for deceiving and cheating tens of thousands of low-income tenants while subjecting them to miserable living conditions. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russian President Vladimir Putin's addressing parliament, or the Duma, today, where he's expected to announce the results of referendums held in four Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine. The U.S. and its allies have condemned the votes as a violation of international law and a pretext for Russia to unlawfully annex territory seized since its invasion in February. Earlier today, the former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, repeated Putin's warning Russia's prepared to use nuclear weapons if it's provoked by Ukraine or its allies, saying his threat is, quote, certainly not a bluff. Meanwhile, the operator of the Nord Stream pipelines, which carry Russian gas to terminals in Europe, says it detected damage simultaneously at three underwater pipes in the Baltic Sea. It's not yet known what caused the damage, but Denmark's prime minister said she believes it's the result of sabotage. In Russia, a Kremlin spokesperson said Monday no decisions have been taken on whether to close Russia's borders after thousands of military-age men lined up for hours to cross into neighboring countries in an effort to avoid conscription. The mass exodus comes after President Putin ordered the mobilization of 300,000 additional Russian troops to Ukraine. This is the 36-year-old man from Moscow who spoke to reporters just after crossing into Georgia Monday. Of course, this has scared many people. 
No one wants to go off to die. Probably people chose this way of protesting to leave the country, you could say practically to nowhere. People are crossing on foot with one bag, leaving their whole life behind. You can say all their possessions, absolutely everything, just to live peacefully. In Cuba, Hurricane Ian made landfall early this morning as a major Category 3 storm, bringing sustained winds of 125 miles per hour to western parts of the island. There were early reports of moderate flooding in coastal areas, where Cuban officials evacuated some 50,000 people ahead of the storm's arrival. Ian's expected to strengthen into a powerful Category 4 hurricane capable of catastrophic damage as it tracks toward the Florida Keys. The latest forecast models show Ian tracking toward Florida's west coast, our northwestern panhandle, with a possible direct hit on Tampa Bay, a densely populated, low-lying region that's highly vulnerable to storm surge. On Tuesday, officials in Hillsborough County, which covers portions of Tampa— ordered a mandatory evacuation of 300,000 people. County Administrator Bonnie Wise said people should seek shelter with friends or family well away from Florida's Gulf Coast. We did not make this decision easily, but this storm poses a serious threat, and we must do everything we can to protect our residents. And I can't stress this enough, evacuation shelters are a last resort. They are not comfortable places. They could be crowded and they could be noisy. And you could be in a shelter for days. In Puerto Rico, an estimated three quarters of a million homes and businesses remain without electricity nearly 10 days after Hurricane Fiona devastated the island's fragile electrical grid. Hundreds of thousands of people continue to face shortages of clean water, fuel, medicine and other necessities. We've spent a week without water or power. The authorities haven't done anything for us. It's very bad here. It's rough. Those who come by give us a little water and leave. We are in rough shape. We lost everything. We are in a bad situation. On Monday, Puerto Rico's governor, Pedro Pierluisi, called on President Biden to waive shipping restrictions under the Jones Act, a century-old law requiring only U.S. flagships carry goods between two points in the U.S. This comes as a ship carrying diesel for the BP oil company remains idling off the coast of Puerto Rico. Meanwhile, Hurricane Ian has delayed NASA's plans to test launch its massive new moon rocket, the Space Launch System. This morning, officials began rolling the 320-foot-tall rocket back to its hangar at Cape Canaveral ahead of the storm's arrival. In more space news, NASA has successfully crashed a robotic spacecraft into an asteroid in a first-of-its-kind test of technology that could one day perhaps prevent a comet or asteroid from hitting the Earth. Mission engineers at the Applied Physics Laboratory erupted in cheers Monday as the Double Asteroid Redirection Test Spacecraft, or DART, live-streamed its final moments plunging toward the asteroid Dimorphos at 14,000 miles per hour. Oh, wow. Awaiting visual confirmation. Of planetary defense. 
Astronomers will observe Dimorphos and the much larger asteroided orbits to measure how DART altered their path around the sun. Impacts from comets and asteroids have been described as the only preventable natural disasters, though the odds of a catastrophic impact in any given year are remote. This comes amidst warnings from NASA over the ongoing threat of unnatural disasters. Peter Kalmus, a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, tweeted, It's great that NASA is testing the ability to deflect an asteroid or comet if necessary. But the actual clear and present danger to humanity is, of course, Earth breakdown from burning fossil fuels. Hashtag don't look up, unquote. In Mississippi, about a thousand homes and businesses are once again under boil water orders after construction crews accidentally severed a water line on Monday, leading to a drop in pressure. It's the latest of about 300 boil water notices issued in Jackson over the past two years, including a citywide advisory lasting 40 days that began in August when torrential rains flooded Jackson's main water treatment plant. On Monday, pastor and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, Dr. William Barber, led a rally outside the governor's mansion in Jackson. Demanding elected officials reverse decades of disinvestment that's left the water unfit to drink in Mississippi's capital city, where 80 percent of residents are African-American. People are willing to use every voice of love and justice and movement building. And I believe some of y'all are ready even for nonviolent direct action because you're tired of drinking poison. You're tired of your members being washing their babies in poison. And there comes a time you must show people how tired you are. Back in Russia, President Vladimir Putin signed a decree Monday granting Russian citizenship to Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor who in 2013 leaked a trove of secret documents about how the United States built a massive surveillance apparatus to spy on Americans and people across the globe. After sharing the documents with American reporters in Hong Kong, Snowden was charged in the U.S. for violating the Espionage Act and other laws. As he fled an attempt to reach political exile in Latin America, Snowden became stranded at Moscow's international airport after the U.S. revoked his passport. He's lived in political exile in Russia ever since. In 2019, Snowden offered to return to the United States if he could be guaranteed a fair trial. In Japan, hundreds of dignitaries and more than 50 current and former world leaders gathered in Tokyo earlier today for the state funeral of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, three months after he was shot dead by an assassin wielding a homemade gun. Members of Japan's self-defense forces fired cannons in a 19-gun salute as Abe's widow, Aki Abe, carried the late leader's ashes to a funeral ceremony. Among those attending were Vice President Kamala Harris and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Meanwhile, thousands of protesters marched through Tokyo's streets chanting, no state funeral. Protesters took aim at Abe's push to revise Japan's pacifist constitution, his ultra-nationalist views, and his refusal to apologize for war crimes committed by Japanese. Japanese soldiers during World War II. And Cubans have voted overwhelmingly to legalize marriage equality. In a nationwide referendum held Sunday, more than two-thirds of Cuban voters backed a family code that allows LGBTQ people to marry or form civil unions and to adopt children. It also promotes the equal distribution of domestic responsibilities between men and women and takes steps to address domestic and gender-based violence. On Monday, Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel tweeted, starting today, we will be 
a better nation. He added the hashtag love is now the law. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Iran, where dozens of people have been killed in a series of escalating women-led protests demanding justice for a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman named Masa Amini, who died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. Amini was detained on September 13th for allegedly leaving some of her hair visible in violation of an Iranian law requiring women to cover their head. Witnesses said Amini was severely beaten in a police van. She died after falling into a coma. Her death has sparked the largest protests Iran has seen since at least 2019. The Norway-based group Iran Human Rights estimates 76 people have been killed over the past two weeks. At least 1,200 have been arrested. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, at least 20 journalists have been arrested covering the protests. Communication remains limited to parts of Iran due to Internet and social media shutdowns. Meanwhile, Iran's Revolutionary Guard attacked areas in northern Iraq Monday populated by Iranian Kurdish separatists. To talk more about the protests, we're joined in Chicago by Huda Khatabi. She's an Iranian-American writer, community organizer, living in Chicago in the Bay Area. Her new op-ed in the Los Angeles Times is headlined, Iranian women are rising up to demand freedom. Are we listening? Welcome, Hoda, to Democracy Now! Describe Thank the you so extent. Much for me. Can you describe the extent of these women-led protests and how radical it is that it is women, and particularly young women, who are not only the spark for these protests, but also the ones in the streets. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what we're seeing in Iran right now is um, really exciting and beautiful. It's terrifying, um, but I think that's just the nature of, of people movements as we see around the world. Um, I do want to say that these mo these movements right now are absolutely led by women, but as have all of the previous movements in Iran. Women have always sort of played a center role within movement spaces in Iran, both before and after the revolution. Um, and so what we're seeing now is actually the natural culmination, not only of women continuously taking up leadership within systems change in Iran, but also decades of state repression against women and particularly focused on women's bodies in public spaces. Um, but what is especially unique about this moment right now is that not only are young women, and we're seeing this for the first time, their bravery is really, really energizing and exciting and inspiring, um, really on the front lines, um, just being faced with all types of different um, government repression from internet censorship to live ammunition to plastic bullets. Um, and also, this, these sets of protests have a bit of a more intersectional approach to them. The central demand that women are, are chanting is for women, life, freedom, which originally is a Kurdish slogan, actually, that has now been translated into Farsi and popularized across the country. And we see in the streets, workers are coming out alongside students, um, Kurdish women, um, non-Kurdish women. And we see a lot of sort of a greater, a greater amount of Iranians from across class um, background coming together um, to demand both justice for Mahsa Amini, the abolition of the Gash Irshad or the so-called morality police and all of the systems that uphold it um, and the state as well. 
And Hoda, could you talk about how the Iranian government has exerted a pressure and repression on the on the Kurdish community over the years? Absolutely. Um, Iranian, the Iranian government has been um, extremely repressive in these protests, as have they been in previous protests as well, too. Um, right now, for example, we're seeing um, live ammunition used. Uh, dozens of Iranians have been killed. Um, a 10-year-old girl was killed in Karaj, which is a suburb of Tehran, um, only days ago. And there has been a particular emphasis on the Kurdish area where Massa or Jina Amini was originally from. These, this area has been sort of the heart and the initial uh, sparking outlet of these protests nationwide. And now we're seeing a sort of an immense pressure that the government is posing on the Kurdish community and sort of using this as an opportunity to really um, advance a lot of the sort of nationalist ideals of the Iranian project onto the Kurdish communities. And uh, there's been a, a particular role by the Basij uh, volunteers in Iran's paramilitary revolutionary guard. Can you talk about their role and who they are? Right. So the Basij are part of um, the Iranian government, uh, sort of apparatus of, of letting down protesters. What's um, also significant is that um, these, these sort of um, paramilitary guards um, are also being stationed um, in places like ambulances or other places that, as we also see, I think very parallels the United States' approach in repressing um, protesters here is that they'll use everyday sort of like civil society objects. So we're seeing a lot of images, for example, of ambulances is on fire or other sorts of um, things that seem like very related to civil society, but we also are seeing a very um, particular tactic of using these items in order to have sort of images of, of ambulances on fire being the videos that are circulating and, and sort of shaping the narratives when in fact there's so much more to that story. There's also a lot of plainclothes basijis um, within sort of the protesters who are trying to push um, specific narratives that allow the state to uh, sort of advance its violence against the protesters. So, for example, um, there's a lot of narratives right now that the Iranian government is trying to push is that this is a uprising or a protest against Islam. It's against hijab. It's not about the right to choose, but it's about Islam um, at large. Um, and these are extremely, extremely um, terrifying uh, to see this sometimes also picked up by people outside of the United States, outside of Iran. Um, because as Iranian women on the ground are fighting for is the right to choice and the right to freedom um, across the board. This is beyond just women's rights um, and does uh, and it's about state violence. Um, and I think that would it kind of making this about Islam and making this about Muslims would actually isolate the millions of Iranian women um, in Iran and around the world who are Muslim, who wear the hijab, who don't wear the hijab, who are also in solidarity or on the front lines of these protests. I was wondering if you can talk about, well, I mean, the actual what the women are doing, ripping off their headscarves, even burning them, men cheering them on. Can you talk about this kind of brazen defiance and what this means for the so-called morality police and the fact that these protests are extending to religious cities, for example, like Rome? Absolutely. Um, I think that what there's there's so many powerful, beautiful images coming out of Iran right now. And as someone who does wear the hijab and has chose to wear the hijab for most of my life, um, I think as an Iranian-American, seeing images of um, Iranians in Iran who have been forced to wear the hijab, like burning their headscarves, I think actually is such a beautiful and powerful symbol because the Iranian government has chosen to adopt this headscarf as its national symbol um, to enforce on women's bodies. 
place in Iran. And so what we're seeing is actually women rising up and burning symbols of the state um, that have been historically um, enforced on their bodies. And so I think that this is a really, really powerful example that I, I think people around the world can really learn from in terms of taking up items that the state has decided is a symbol of itself. Of course, these are very contextualized, and I also want to underscore that several times, um, because an Iranian in Iran uh, who has been forced to wear the hijab by the state burning a headscarf is very different um, than, say, Pompeo in the United States burning a hijab in his house um, on Twitter. So um, I, I also think that the context around this is very, very important. Um, and, I, and I think that this also speaks to uh, why, the, why, why this protest in this moment has been so um, beautifully spread and we've seen so much international solidarity is because um, women are really on the front lines and demanding that this moment open up a greater um, conversation, not just about more like um, morality police and uh, mandatory dress codes, but actually the intersections of um, socioeconomic class um, on women's bodies, labor justice, economic justice, and really talking about progress and moving forward on a systemic level and that there should be no gender delay in that conversation. Also amazing to see them cutting their hair. Uh, World-renowned Oscar-winning Iranian filmmaker Asghar Fahadi released a video calling on artists around the world to declare their solidarity with the protesters in Iran. This is... This society, especially these women, has traveled a harsh and painful path to this point. And now they have clearly reached a landmark. I deeply respect their struggle for freedom and the right to choose their own destiny, despite all the brutality they are subjected to. Through this video, I invite all artists, filmmakers, intellectuals, civil rights activists from all over the world and all countries, everyone who believes human dignity and freedom to stand in solidarity with the powerful and brave women and men of Iran by recording video or writing or any other way. Uh, Hoda, your response to this uh, support from other sectors of society and also the issue of the level of surveillance by the morality police. You wrote in the L.A. Times that, quote, early this month, the government announced it will start using facial recognition technology in public spaces to enforce dress codes against women. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I, I definitely uplift um, those words by Asghar Farhadi, though I think that was a very beautiful call to stand in solidarity with Iranian women and also recognize that um, these struggles are connected globally. Um, and and I think especially when it comes to things like surveillance, you know, so we see an increased level of state surveillance of women's bodies, in particular in Iran, um, in order to enforce dress code. And this is something that we've actually been seeing increased specifically um, these past several years under the Raisi administration. Um, that have also sort of imposed a new fining system for ticketing women for different dress code violations. And so this is, has definitely been part of a larger trajectory um, that has, especially in these past few years, really worsened um, and uh, the cracking down on women's bodies in public spaces in Iran. This is the Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi responding to the protests. 
They want to ride a wave and create riots and disturbances. They think with such moves they can stop the nation. We have announced many times that if anyone has a fair comment, we will listen to it. But anarchy, disturbing national security, the security of people, no one will succumb to this. I was wondering if you can respond, if you're talking really here about a civil war, the protests escalating. Also, Chris Jamanamapur expected to interview him in New York. He just addressed the U.N. General Assembly. She refused to wear a headscarf, said she would in Iran. She is Iranian, but not here. Um, and he canceled the interview. Um I think it's hard to feel anything other than just absolutely outraged um, when you when you see um, when you hear his words. Um, and I, I think what is particularly, I think, especially important, I think, for for someone like myself who's very used to hearing that being said by U.S. presidents whenever there are um, massive protests across the country. For example, after the death of George Floyd, and I think that this is just a common state tactic to um, focus on sort of things that are happening in the fringes or the marginal marginalized parts of a movement and not actually centering the voices. I think that there have been women, there have been people talking about um, these issues, uh, civil society organizations that have been bringing these issues forward for decades. Um, for decades since the revolution, people have been talking about this. So I think it would be absolutely ludicrous to say that this is the first time that hijab has been a conversation in Iran when this has actually been at the forefront of conversations, along with how it's connected to class um, and the economic situation in Iran. Iran, um, the treatment of ethnic minorities in Iran. And we actually saw a lot of that um, increase when there was a surge of Afghan refugees to Iran after the U.S. botched withdrawal in Afghanistan. So I think these conversations have always happened. In fact, on the contrary, we have seen an, a sort of uh, a reduction of spaces to be able to have these conversations. Um, civil society organizations have come out in full-fledged against um, the Gash Ershad and the systems that uphold it. And they have, and many that have been working on these issues before have either been forced to close. The leaders of nonprofits of, or, of organizations in Iran have been banned from working. And so I think that this is sort of a tipping point of escalated sort of both um, these sorts of state, specifically state restrictions um, that have the crackdown has worsened, as well as an increase of closure of spaces to be able to talk about this outside of protesting on the streets. We just have 30 um, seconds. Also, to, oh, go ahead. And that is uh, your thoughts on calls for increased sanctions against Iran. It is the most ironic, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better word, term, because sanctions kill people. Um, sanctions have killed Iranian women, and we can just look to the history of our neighbor of Iraq to understand how devastating sanctions are. Um, Iranians' women's call for women, life, and freedom, as I've mentioned, reached to the economic sector, and United States sanctions have played a major role on crippling the Iranian economy. Um, right now, Iran is also at a moment of some of its worst economic um, situations since the revolution. And this is directly tied to U.S. sanctions as well, too. And so, if anything, Iranian women just want, and Iranians at large, the United States to have no interference in this. And that includes removal of all sanctions on Iran that have historically been there. We've seen a little bit about this when Biden has removed some of the sanctions um, around telecommunications that have enabled the Iranian government to have a monopoly on the uh, censorship of Iranian voices. And so, we urge sort of Biden to continue to remove sanctions off of Iran so that America has no interference and that 
Iranians on the ground become the agents of their own futures on their own terms. Hoda Khatabi, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Iranian-American writer, community organizer, living in Chicago and the Bay Area. We'll link to your piece in the Los Angeles Times, Iranian women are rising up to demand freedom. Are we listening? Next up, we go to Baltimore. The Kushner company agrees to pay at least $3 million to settle claims of shoddy apartments and rent abuses. Then we'll go to Philadelphia. Stay with us. Ciao, the classic Italian protest song being sung in Persian by an Iranian woman in a video that's gone viral online as part of nationwide protests. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez, a property management company partly owned by Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has agreed to pay $3.25 million to the state of Maryland and to reimburse tens of thousands of tenants in Baltimore. Maryland's Attorney General Brian Frosch said, quote, this is a case in which landlords deceived and cheated tenants and subjected them to miserable living conditions. The state of Maryland sued the Kushner-owned company after ProPublica detailed how the company hounded low-income tenants with a barrage of lawsuits, eviction notices and late fees, even when the tenants were in the right. ProPublica's 2017 investigation was written by Alec McGillis, who joins us now from Baltimore. He's an award-winning reporter and editor-at-large at the Baltimore Banner. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Alec. Why don't you lay out what the settlement is about and, most importantly, the behavior of the Kushner company. Sure. This is a really big settlement. Um, it's really hard to find precedent for a settlement this big in a case like this. More than $3 million, as you said. Um, residents are going to be able to file claims for rent that they had to pay on these incredibly shoddy units. Um, I was in units back in 2017 that had holes in the wall, that, that had um, leaks all over the place, that were riddled with mice. Um, one woman had raw sewage coming out of her kitchen sink. Um, she had maggots coming out of her carpet, um, appliances not working, gas leaks, just these endless problems that, that tenants had to deal with. And they were still having to, of course, pay their rent and, and being constantly taken into court by, by the Kushners. What, what my article described was just this constant hounding of tenants for alleged uh, missing rent and broken leases. Um, where they would just, for years and years and years, go after tenants and former tenants, um, even garnishing their wages. Sometimes rent residents, tenants would find their bank accounts suddenly just cleared out because the, uh, because the company had just gone in and, and, and gotten a court order to take all their money away. And, and they, of course, were utterly powerless often to, to fight back, even when they were in the right. There were tenants who had left the complexes, these complexes in Baltimore, before the Kushners bought them um, in 2012, 2013, in that, in that range. 
and nonetheless the company was coming after them for alleged broken leases and unpaid rent from prior from prior years. They basically saw these tenants as a as a profit center that that they were going to squeeze as much money out of as possible. And uh, Alec, what are we talking about here in terms of the numbers of units that the Kushners owned? And how, can you talk about how the uh, how this uh, payout was enabled? What was the process like when uh, 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 of the lawsuit? Sure, the there's there are thousands of these units. It's a whole really kind of a whole uh, hidden world of these what I called Kushnerville. These. Um, at the time, it was when I wrote the article, it was 15 large complexes all sort of across the Baltimore suburbs. This is not in the sort of, you know, urban core of Baltimore. These are not the old row houses that you know from, from the wire. These are um, complexes built in the 60s and 70s that kind of sprawl all around the inner suburbs of Baltimore, about 9,000 units in all. Um, the the uh, attorney general estimates that 30,000 people, um, to different tenants, lived in these units during the time in question. So you now have th- thousands of people who are going to be able to file claims. The way it's going to work is that if, if tenants had had major maintenance problems in their units and were having to pay rent anyway, they're now going to be able to file a claim for that rent um, and try to get some of it back. And starting in three months, they're going to be able to start filing these claims. They'll have a year to do so. There's going to be a, quote, special master appointed who's going to oversee um, sort of assessing these claims. Then on top of that, uh, the Kushners are going to have to automatically uh, automatically reimburse tenants and former tenants for the fees that they were unjustly charged over and over, these late fees and court fees that were often not not merited and not allowed. So they're going to have to basically automatically disperse that money to to people. People are not going to have to file separate claims for that, but but they can now file claims for for the uh, for the rent that they paid on these very shoddy units. And, and, the, and this is uncapped, so that means that the Kushners um, are paying a $3.25 million fine to the state. Part of that, 800000 of that, is sort of a down payment on, on the claims they're going to be paying out to tenants. But that, those claims can go, can go as high, you know, it's, it's, it's the sky's the limit, basically. Is to, you know, if, if a whole bunch of claims come in, they're going to have to pay them all. And to what extent has your investigation or the court record revealed uh, uh, the extent that Jared Kushner himself was either directly involved or was he largely a passive investor when it comes to this, uh, to uh, all of these units? He was very, very involved. Um, he was still running the company um, back in 2012, 2013, when the company decided to make the deci- decided to buy all, most of, start buying these complexes. That was his decision to basically these complexes were providing this incredible cash flow for this big real estate company that was had become very highly uh, leveraged, highly uh, in debt with with very fancy purchases that it was making in New York. These uh, big investments in New York. Um, the gleaming towers in Manhattan that it owned. Um, meanwhile, its its real core business was was the uh, the revenue that was coming in from these thousands of units in the, in these very sort of humble uh, areas of of Baltimore. Um, so he, that was his that was his decision to make to make that investment, and then and then his decision to pursue these people as aggressively as they did, really to be, um, to sort of see, see these tenants as, as this, um, this, in, this incredible source of revenue that you wanted to squeeze as much out of as you possibly could. When he became um, an advisor to the president in 2017, his father-in-law, Donald Trump, um, and moved into the West Wing, he gave up, um, 
he, he stepped back from that title as president of the company, but he um, all along has has now and now again has retained a very strong hand in 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 the company. And this is this is this is his this is his project. Alec, final question, just to put the three point two five million dollars in some perspective. The New York Times reporting in April, Saudi Arabia contributed over two billion dollars to Jared Kushner's new investment fund. And you have New York's attorney general suing Donald Trump, as well as his three kids, including Jared's wife, Ivanka Trump, accusing them of widespread financial fraud that could possibly lead to the disbanding of the Trump empire in New York. Your final thought. Certainly, the 3.25 million in in the sort of the scale of Kushner um, and, and their um, their their wealth and, and the Saudis and all that is is a relative pittance um, for them. However, it is it's, it still represents a, a really solid form of accountability for these wrongs that we that we exposed back in 20, 2017. It took five years to get here, but still there's now some real accountability here for the way these tenants were treated. And for the tenants who are now able to file claims and, and are going to get some money back, even if it's just a few hundred, a couple thousand dollars, for a lot of these tenants, that means a lot, because these tenants are living in a, in a world, in a universe where, um, where in a whole different kind of scale of, of finances than, than the Kushners. That's what I always found so stunning was that you had this, one of the most powerful people in the country um, sitting in the White House and, um, and just 40 miles away, he, he and his company were hounding these people who lived in an entirely different world, who often didn't even know that the landlord who was squeezing them for so much money was, in fact, Jared Kushner, son-in-law to President Trump. Well, Alec McGillis, we thank you for your work. A reporter for ProPublica will link to your new piece, Kushner Company Agrees to Pay Out at Least $3.25 Million to Settle Claims of Shoddy Apartments and Rent Abuses. We're going to continue on the issue of renters. We'll look at a fight for affordable housing in Philadelphia, speaking to two residents facing eviction in Philadelphia, plus Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign organizing to stop the evictions. Back in 30 seconds. All you take is a glimpse of the rainbow after rain. All you take is a little bit of love and total pain. All you take is a glimpse of the rainbow after rain. All you take is a little bit of love and love and love and Yeah, I promise it's okay to take it step by step. You're not alone. You're so strong when you need help to master your situation and find your peace on the daily look within you amazing just look how far you made it i promise it's all right that i know where you are your journey's still full of purpose you can follow the stars your humanness make the guidance fairy by vitamin c this is democracy now democracynow.org the war and peace report i'm amy goodman with juan gonzalez as we turn now to Philadelphia and a campaign to stop the displacement of people who live in affordable housing in a complex called University City Town Homes that's located in the now largely gentrified area of University City around the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel University. The neighborhood was once known as Black Bottom. The complex was built to provide affordable housing for the predominantly black and brown families and low-income seniors who lived there for years and were displaced um, by the university's buildings. For four decades, the property owner, Ibid Associates, 
contacted, uh, contracted with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to run University City townhomes. It now plans to redevelop the property. The owner ordered all residents to leave by October 7th, but announced Monday that it reached an agreement with the company to extend with HUD to extend its contract through the end of the year. Residents want a commitment to keep the complex affordable instead of being displaced. They've held months of encampments and protests, and Bishop Barber, president of Repairers of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, recently came to draw national attention to the crisis and may well go back. Many residents facing eviction from the University City townhomes complex have lived there their whole lives. We're joined now by two residents, along with Bishop Barber, um, who says he may move in with them for a few days. In Philadelphia, Rashid Alexander, resident leader and organizer with the UC Townhomes, who's lived there for 14 years, and Sheldon Davids, resident leader and organizer with the UC Townhomes, who's been a member of UC Townhomes community for 13 years. His elderly mother-in-law has lived there for 40 years. Rashida Alexander, let's begin with you. Um, you have raised your children there. Talk about the neighborhood and what exactly has happened. You've also won a victory, a slight extension from eviction, though you're fighting to make that permanent. Yes. So um, I came out of homelessness and became a resident at University City Townhomes. Uh, I've raised my daughter, who's now 17. Um, in the University City Townhomes, the area, you know, is a really good area. Um, they have really good schools there. The amenities that are there um, are very accommodating. Uh, over the years, I've seen um, what was invested into our community, community slowly um, stripped away from us. Um, they took our children's institutions away, learning institutions, um, uh, elementary school, our early childhood center, and a high school. Um, and then years later, they this you know are displacing the families here. But this community has been a close knit community for over forty years now. Um, so everybody in the community are pretty close. Uh, we're pretty much like family. And I wanted to ask Sheldon Davies, you've also you also lived in the community for many years. You still have uh, relatives there and, and friends. What about this whole issue of this uh, Altman management company wanting to to renovate these apartments from three and four bedrooms to studio and one bedroom apartments? Who are they uh, hoping to rent these to? Well, um, I don't want to speculate on who their target audience is, but what I am prepared to say with uh, some certainty and is that we need to preserve the living spaces, the kinds of living spaces for the persons who are there because those spaces meet the needs of the persons that, whether because of multi-generational families or being elderly or being disabled. The space that they now occupy helps them to live their lives in as regular a way as possible and it helps them to project, to realize their potential. And the idea of reducing the space that these folks occupy is anathema 
to the kind of development that folks claim that they want for the less enfranchised persons in our society. And I wanted to ask uh, Reverend William Barber, uh, this, the national significance of what's going on here, uh, so many cities across the country, these giant uh, so-called liberal universities who, who always talk about racial justice and diversity, equity and inclusion, whether it's the University of Chicago or Columbia University in New York, Temple University in North Philly, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, uh, they are all gentrifying the neighborhoods around them uh, and pushing out more uh, uh, black and brown residents. And poor people, let's be real, this is poor black and brown, poor white, poor low income. These are not, and working poor, these are persons who get a subsidy for the rent. But remember, this same community was displaced 40 years ago, now they're trying to displace them again. And universities, I'll say it, like UPenn and Drexel, any of those universities need to be ashamed of themselves. They should shut down their departments of sociology and, 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 and political science and law if they're not going to stand by communities just like this. This should be a model community. They should be talking about how to make sure all of the children in these communities can go free to these schools rather than how to displace them. We know that in, in Pennsylvania, for instance, working at a minimum wage, you have to work 103 hours a week just to afford a basic two-bedroom apartment. We know 2.5 million workers make under $15 an hour. What we know is that these, these tenants uh, have been fighting 11 months of tenant organizing. They had a 31-day protest encampment in July. Now 40-some faith leaders have signed on to a letter saying to the mayor, meet with them, because the mayor said, I'm not going to meet with you. They are calling on their state senator to pledge that state money towards saving townhomes and other Section 8, because see, the, you see townhome is the first. It'll be like a domino effect if, if we're not careful, and they'll be, be removing all of them. This is a place where poor and low-wealth folk have access to premier health care, premier jobs, premier education. It should be a model for the nation and not a model for destruction. Uh, the, the, the tenants have also figured out a way with other advocates to create uh, a way to save it, to create a special fund. Uh, that's what we should be talking about, how to preserve for families with disabilities, for parents, for residents, for people who've been there for the longest time. And it's happening around the country this kind of displacement and throwing people out on the street in a, in, a, in a situation where we already know that millions of people live on the brink of homelessness every night in America. We know that 40 percent of all Pennsylvanians are poor and low income. You know, this should be a political issue. The people running for candidate, running for the Senate in, in, in uh, Pennsylvania should be saying where they stand with these citizens. Uh, but what we know is the citizens are not going to give up. Those of us that are coming are just joining what they're doing. And I've had an invitation from uh, some of the residents to come and stay. And we're going to take them up on it. We had planned to go this weekend. Now we see a move, uh, maybe, but um, extending the the, um, the the deadline. But I really don't think they, they want to just throw the people out in the street. They want them to move. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make them move out. And the, the citizens are saying no, like a tree step planted beside the water. We're not going anywhere. And so we're going to keep working with these tenants. America needs to hear from these folks. This is us. This is who we are. They're black, they're white, they're Latino, they're young, they're old, they're, they're uh, people of different races, different sexualities, different disabilities. And what you have is a city and two universities and a greedy developer 
trying to throw them out when what they should be doing is lifting them up as a model community and what we should be building all around America. I mean, you talked about, Bishop Barber, um, how they were displaced 40 years ago and being displaced again. And this is an absolutely key point, that the whole area known as Black Bottom between the 50s and 70s, the federal government initiating a period of urban redevelopment, often referred to as urban renewal across American cities. The city cleared many local neighborhoods to create space for university-affiliated commercial and residential buildings. So the people already had to move. They were told, you have to move here. And now— once again, um, though many young people and the students in that area, of course, don't know this past history, uh, can you talk about the relationship between um, Altman Management Company um, as they also co-own student housing? Yeah, well, you know, that, isn't that the irony? We, we, we have a company on the one hand is owning student housing and on the other hand is trying to put the community out that was displaced years ago because of racism. Now they want to displace them now because of greed and because they think that the residents are poor and black and brown and white and disabled and they can just roughshod over them and push them out. But what they didn't expect was that these residents, these tenants would say, uh-uh, we're not moving. If you do this, you're going to have to do it in the broader daylight and we're going to keep fighting. The reality is this this, this um, group they should they could should extend the hood uh, contract for one to two years, and that could allow the people to stay in their homes, and then they could have time to plan and actually figure out a way to sell the um, uh, property in a way that would preserve the housing, preserve the housing. And the tenants want they have a plan for that. They have people who are willing to do that. What they're trying to do is hurry up and rush. Amy, do you know they've even cut the lights off on the tenants now outside? They've refused to stop fixing the apartments up. Is they're trying to pressure them. They're trying to do everything they can to make them move on their own because what they don't want to do is see them throw out, throw, be thrown out. And I want the students to hear what you just said. <laughs> students at Penn, students at Drexel, you all should be joining in massive action, nonviolently, with these tenants. Black Bottom, they were thrown there years ago to push them out of the way. Now people want to throw them out again to get them out of the way. It was always about greed and money and racism. It still is today. And there needs to be a major rising around this because this is wrong. And Drexel, I said to you on camera and Penn, the presidents, you ought to be standing right beside these residents and saying, take your hands off of them. You should be doing everything you can to invest in this community rather than divest this community and destroy them and push them out and gentrify this community. It's not right, and everybody knows it's not right that looks at it. Uh, Sheldon Davies, I wanted to ask you, the, uh, the developer and, uh, uh, and, and HUD, of course, are talking about that the residents would be offered Section 8 certificates. You're familiar with uh, housing vouchers. You're familiar with Section 8 certificates. Why is that a terrible alternative? It's uh, certainly not a viable one. I don't know that I'd go as far as to say it's a terrible one, but it certainly isn't viable primarily because increasingly we're finding that um, property owners are not uh, entertaining the idea um, of participating in the program. So when potential renters, when the displaced persons from our community and others venture out into the spaces 
um, to try to find other places to live, they are hamstrung from jump because when they present vouchers, that that puts up a wall between themselves and potential renters because they're not particularly enamored with the program to begin with. And there's also it also means that their options become narrowed in terms of the kinds of neighborhoods that they can um, explore living in and the kind of structures that um, are available to them in terms of the quality of the housing that they have access to. And Rashid Alexander, if you could talk about the student solidarity that has been shown by, for example, Penn students and the fact that they feel they're being retaliated against, as Altman also deals with student housing as well as your housing. Yes. So um, the students, um, they're standing in solidarity with us, um, actually uh, asked for a meeting with Liz McGill, um, who's the new president of University at Penn. They continued and well, they started and continued the encampment that originally started at the University City Townhomes. And now they're being harassed. Um, the administration is coming there harassing the students, um, asking them for their IDs. They also um, have board hearings um, for these students, have um, for the for them to have disciplinary action um, because of them protesting and standing in solidarity with us and telling Penn to, you know, keep their promise because they have many broken promises. Um, to the neighborhood where University City resides. I want to thank both of you for being with us, Rashida Alexander and Sheldon Davids, residents of UC Town Homes, part of the campaign to save thank affordable you. housing in Philadelphia. And we're going to continue to cover your story. Uh, we're going to also now move in our final minutes to another area of disinvestment. Bishop Barber, before you go, you're joining us from Jackson, Mississippi. On Monday, you led a rally outside the governor's mansion in Jackson, demanding elected officials reverse decades of disinvestment that's left the water unfit to drink in Mississippi's capital city, where 80 percent of all residents are African-American. Can you talk about the crisis there? Another boil water order. Yeah, and it's been going on for nearly 50 years. Over 170-some thousand residents are without water. And while the city is 82 percent African-American, this is also a dirty, poisonous water uh, for black people, for disabled people, from white people. We even had a white doctor who suffers from MS talk about on the, at the rally how bad this is and what's going on. Mothers are having to wash their children's bodies in those water. They do not know what's in it. They, the children not been tested. The water's not been tested. Uh, they're putting Clorox in dirty water. This is a terrible situation, and it's an immoral and sinful violation of equal protection under law and human rights, because at the same time, allegedly, the governor, along with Brett Farr, have now been uh, caught stealing money, taking money, money that was dedicated for poor and low-wealth people in order to do pet projects. And, and we don't even know how deep that is. It's also immoral and sinful and a violation of fundamental human rights because the citizens of Jackson, number one, the mayors have always had a plan. This mayor has a plan. People have lied about that. The citizens also were willing to tax themselves 
And they did it. They voted to tax themselves. And then the governor and extremist Republican legislators voted to not allow them to use their own tax money to fix the problem. There's a there's something in Jackson. They want that city. To, to, they want the airport. They, uh, they do not want to fix this problem. They want to put a Band-Aid on it and push it out of the media. But people are saying, no, we've launched Moral Monday there. We'll be back in two weeks. People are standing up. They're fighting back. Now there's a lawsuit. But the lawsuit is misdirected. The lawsuit is going at the mayor uh, uh, when the lawsuit should really and, and the city of Jackson, when the lawsuit should be going after the state and uh, and the government, because it's the, the city, the capital city. And it's the state government of Mississippi that not only has denied people health care, denied living wages, but denied every opportunity for Jackson to have his water restored and to have clean water in the capital city of that state. I want people to hear that in the capital city of that state. And it all began, Amy, 50 years ago in 1972, around the issues of desegregation. There's been an attack on that city and its infrastructure ever since then. And Reverend Barber, I wanted to ask you the uh, the new the EPA Joe Biden's EPA administrator Mike Regan, the first African American to head that agency, announced uh, recently the uh, a new Office of Environmental Justice and Civil Rights, uh, and uh, he did so in your home state of North Carolina in Warrington, the predominantly black community that many consider to be the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. What could the federal government uh, do in uh, not only in terms of uh, Jackson, but so many other cities around the country where environmental justice uh, is a burning issue for uh, uh, black and brown communities. Well, years ago, my father, William Barber Sr., and people like uh, Ben Chavis and Leon White and Dolly Burrell and others were a part of that movement to stop a company that at night was coming through and dropping PCB in the ditches in front of people's homes late at night, and people were coming up with cancer. They ended up having to lay down in front of those trucks to stop it, and they called it environmental racism because they were doing it in a predominantly black community. But it's also environmental classism as well because that's a poor community. And what Secretary Regan announced yesterday was finally, and this is a great first step, is that the government is saying we're going to put 200 employees and billions of dollars in an agency that has power to, 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 to protect, power to sue, power to stop, power to investigate what's going on, that has the power to say to corporations, you cannot do this anymore to communities, treat corporations like people and people like things. This is an important first step. And Secretary Reagan came to Jackson yesterday and also announced that he has the green light to say to Mississippi government, if you don't do right here, we can pull that federal money. You know, that's what the federal government can do. They can pull all of the federal money that comes into a state when a state is engaging in outright racism, outright classism, and outright uh, harm toward poor people, uh, low-wage people, disabled people. This is what we have to have. We have to have equal protection under the law. Everything we're talking about was created by bad policy. Therefore, it can be fixed by good policy. And so here we are in Jackson, but we could go to Oak Flats in Arizona, what's happening to the Apache people there and their water. We could still do it with Flint. We could go to what's happening up with these pipelines that are being built across the country. Uh, I just got a call from a community up in Michigan, predominantly white community, that Minnesota students is having similar problems. The Corps of Engineers 
could join with the state and the federal government to fix these problems and should fix these problems. Because otherwise, what we're doing is poisoning people. And to think of the fact that a place like Jackson and other places had this going on during COVID, when the one thing the doctor said you needed during COVID was clean water. So we don't know yet how many people died uh, in Jackson or got sick beyond where they should have because of poison water, because it has not been fixed, because there's been a 50-year Band-Aid approach, because they've lied on the mayors of Jackson and said they didn't have a plan, because they have refused to fix it. Uh, This is what has to be explored. One of the things we're talking about— We have 10 seconds, Bishop. We're talking about getting some public policy experts and doctors to help do that analysis so that people know really what's going on and we can fight to change it. Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign and Repairers of the Breach, speaking to us from Jackson, Mississippi, headed to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And we will continue to cover both of these issues. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe.